Well, good morning. Good to see you. Oop. Saved. My name is James, if you don't know me. Just um, a quick bit about me to start before we crack on with today's theme. So, um, what would I say about myself? I'm quite introverted, but I love people, so I'm happiest amongst a small group of friends. And I also love to be creative and to make things, to go out, take photos, enjoy the fresh air. Um, and a recent piece of news for me and for three others in our church family is that next Saturday, um, myself, Wendy, and Hugo and Toby Kingston are getting confirmed in Wells Cathedral. So we'd really appreciate your prayers. If you feel like tipping up in beautiful Wells next Saturday at 2 p.m., you're most welcome to join us. And essentially for me, the reason I've chosen to take the step is because um, Jesus calls me to be his disciple, which means his apprentice. It means that I've always got things to learn in, always got things to grow in, always want to step into more of his likeness. And I guess rather than confirmation being like, I'm there, it was just an opportunity to explore that some more. So that's me. Um, today we are continuing our series on the kingdom of God. And last week we looked at the, the reality of the battle that we sometimes face in life. And previously we've also looked at what the kingdom is and what our part to play is in the kingdom. So you might be thinking, I've already heard that kingdom word quite a lot. I kind of get the gist of it now. Should we, should we move on? Um, but I think sometimes we can have some interesting perspectives on the kingdom, perhaps some skewed expectations. And I think what this passage does is to address some of those expectations. Um, so let's, let's actually pray as we start. Lord, thank you that you are here. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you call us your friends and you want to let us in on your business. So I pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak through your word by the power of the Holy Spirit to us. And Lord, we would come to understand your kingdom not as we see it, but as you see it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in case you've missed any of the series so far, essentially the language of the kingdom of God is something that a first century Jew would be very familiar with. So Jesus was kind of speaking the language of the people. It was this ancient Jewish notion of God's rule and reign. And there's very little optimism in the Jewish dynamic at that time around the current system, around the current institution of rule and reign. So Jesus comes onto the scene knowing that they're fed up, knowing that they're despairing, and speaks hope in their tongue and preaches the kingdom of God. And he talks in, in interesting ways about the kingdom of God. So he starts off by saying, the kingdom of God has drawn near, but he also says the kingdom of God is now and not yet. He explains that his arrival, his coming to earth, is the mark that the start of the unraveling of God's kingdom. It starts with him, and then he draws his followers into it. 
And from there throughout history, his kingdom is going to build until he comes again in glory. And one of the, the similes, one of the phrases he uses to explain this divine, challenging, mind-blowing kingdom is the picture of the mustard seed. Now, before we go any further, we have to remember that his audience have preconceived ideas about what that kingdom will be like. They know all the prophecies, they've heard all the teaching. And in modern terms, it's as if they believed that Israel was going to be the kind of nation that spearheads the UN, that no other world power comes close, that there's no competition, that they are the ones at the tip the top rather than at the tail, that they are providing aid for those in need, exporting masses of goods, world-class produce, the cutting edge of science, philosophy, education, health, technology, the arts. They've read that one day nations will gather to them, stream to them, to learn about their God, the God that will destroy all their enemies. And they've undergone hundreds of years of exile and hundreds of years of being oppressed under other people's rule. So when they hear the kingdom of God, they think firstly, okay, well, Rome has got to go. Rome has got to go. This coming king, when the kingdom comes, is going to be a massive political upheaval. But then Jesus arrives, demonstrates in heavenly ways that he's more than any king that they could ever hope for or dreamed for, But, you know, maybe he's not planning to take on the empire. I mean, he's got all these hundreds and thousands of people gathering to him, but he also talks about the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. And he goes on to say that actually one of his kingdom plans is that he should die and that his followers will die at the hands of those who are ruling over them. What is going on? And it's quite a task in their hands, really, if they're going to do a political upheaval, because in Jesus' time, the Roman Empire was over three million kilometers squared in size and ruling over 45 million people. But a mustard seed is no more than two millimeters in diameter. And I think the size is important. The kingdom starts super small, humble in nature, and it's An insignificant thing, there are so many mustard seeds in the world, too many to count. One seed counts for nothing, right? It's unimpressive. And perhaps what Jesus is doing is he's confronting his listeners' perceptions of what significance looks like, of what rule and reign and authority looks like. And perhaps he has the same for us today. Things that seemingly and not amazing on the surface, can have amazing potential. And I think that challenge of what looks amazing isn't, and what doesn't look amazing could be, is something that we can struggle with. I actually think that we have been programmed to need everything to be amazing. We have taught to desire only what is breathtaking and novel the new, the spectacular, the incredible. You might notice that we don't just have convenience stores anymore. We have bars, restaurants, and shops dedicated to every niche diet. We don't seem to have a Beatles of the decade 
that can captivate a generation because our attention span is just too short. We are too easily bored. Our taste buds need constant stimulus. And I think this goes as far as to play out in our relationships. Some of us disengage from community, church, family, friendships, dating, and marriage when it's no longer exciting or exceptional. We have an addiction to the spectacular. And I was thinking about this recently. I went to um, a gig at the Forum. It was an artist called Nils Fram, who in fact played here many years ago. Uh, Nils Fram played here many years ago. Oliver Arnolds, who I saw, didn't, sorry. So I went to see Oliver Arnolds. And it was spectacular. It was absolutely amazing. He had a string quartet, and they played so passionately, and were able to draw out all these colors and images and emotions. Oliver himself was this remarkable composer, kind of engrossed in his piano sounds. The way he has poured out his life into his music and into his sounds and compositions is just so inspiring and costly. You could feel it in the, in the music, in the lighting, in his storytelling. It was very intense. Very intense. Yet, I wasn't gripped. And the reason being was that actually I'd been to see Nils Fram, the wrong name I mentioned earlier, previously. And Nils is one of Olafur's contemporaries. Similar style, similar philosophy, Different personality, different work, but kind of the same. And so I came away from the, the Oliver gig not going, oh, I was so gripped, I sat on the edge of my seat, I couldn't take my eyes off him. But thinking, I wish he could have taken it one step further. Because I kind of seen it all before. And I wonder whether our hunger for the novelty is fed by an idolization of success, and success that's defined by progress. If you think about it, if only I can have another first time, one more landmark bigger than the last, that I can prove that I'm moving forwards. I can prove there are things ahead of me that are greater than the ones behind me, things that are remarkable, things that I can prove my worth. And there's a succession. There's the first day of school, the first day of uni, maybe college, first job, first paycheck, first bonus, first promotion, first medal in a race, first time at Twickenham, first home, first smartphone, first kiss, first relationship, first child, first family holiday abroad, first grandchild, first experience of the Holy Spirit, first prophetic word, First time leading someone to Christ. First leadership role. First church. First healing. All of these first times are great, wonderful, novel experiences. And they can be really good. Yet too often our levels of thankfulness slip and slide because there's something wonderful that's happened. We've seen it all before. And the, the other challenge, really, is to retrain our eyes. For you see, if we're always looking for the spectacular, we might miss the kingdom of God altogether. If we're always looking for the spectacular, we might miss the kingdom of God altogether. 
The kingdom of God is in the moment when someone actually believes what God says about them is true about them. The kingdom of God is in the moment when a person begins to fight against their porn addiction. The kingdom of God is in the moment when a nurse comes by out of care rather than out of obligation. These are the truly great kingdom of God moments. The moments that might seem insignificant but have the ability to change history. Imagine the person who embraces what God says about them for the first time. And that leads to a change in job. And they go about investing their lives, the time, their energy in seeing the most poor and suffering in Bath find life in all its fullness. Imagine if the person who has the porn addiction gets free and their relationships are restored and they learn wisely how to battle with lust and teach a future generation to tackle porn in a way that we haven't so that the porn industry collapses and the slave trade and the human trafficking goes down and sexual abuse goes down just because one person decided to give up porn. Imagine the person who has a nurse who turns up out of care rather than out of obligation. And that person is inspired to go into the healthcare profession themselves, to see others healed and care for those with love and dignity. The small things that have enormous potential for the growth in God's kingdom. We need to have eyes to see what might seem insignificant to others to see what the seed can grow into. And actually, a mustard seed in our Bible passage, it tells us that, well, basically, if it's not in water and it's not in dirt, it will never come to find its full potential. It has to be cultivated. It has to be stewarded. That exponential growth that's locked inside of it, that seed that has the ability to be nothing or everything, depending on where it's planted. And perhaps you're thinking, well, I think I've got quite a, quite a clear understanding of what God sees as significant and what the world sees as significant, and I know those things are different. They're different. They don't play at all in my thinking, but I think they do. You know, so much of the way that Western church marks its success now is measured by number of attendees. Somehow we in the West think that the church is less significant simply because less people go. But it's not true. This parable says that it's not true. Christianity is growing immeasurably quickly in large parts of the world too. And absolutely ballooned under persecution in its early days as well. But that lie that the church is somehow less significant because of its size weighs on us. I think sometimes it could feel like it's better just to sit on our hands and wait for the second coming, to leave our following of Jesus closeted, or to see it as something that's lame or secondary. Or to be scared that basically Jesus cannot stand up to culture. And I think the thing is, if the, if the church doesn't work harder to fight what the world defines as significant, we won't end up with true followers of Christ. We may end up with cool churches that are filled with people who are there because it's cool. 
You know, I have no interest in drawing students to this church on the basis that they can contribute their time and energy and fill our rotors. I have no interest in simply finding a way to be culturally more relevant to our young people in this city so that they can come and consume. I have every interest in a city-wide discipling of each of one of our 25,000 students so that they become fearless followers of Christ who are not swayed by fashions or reputations, but every ounce of them is invested in seeking God's kingdom. That's what I'm interested in. So we need to change the way that we think about God's ability and his power to take those small, insignificant things. And I think this is personal. It's not just about the church and the size of the church. But notice how in this parable it says, a man took a seed and planted it in his garden. I think some of us need to take responsibility for stewarding the seed that we've been given. And God tends to give his plans not in fully flourished, finished form, but in seed form so that we get to join in with the growing journey. And when we're presented with that seed form promise, we have the opportunity to either embrace it and cultivate it, or to park it or reject it and leave it alone. But no man is an island, and I don't know if you've ever experienced the joy of being able to help someone grow their own seed, cultivate what God's given them, to see them flourish, and to bring to bear something that could not be done alone. I love this picture from um, a chap at a church in New York, Bridgetown Church, shares about what it means to be a mustard seed people. We are on the brink of a growing forest. Every single one of us has something that God has designed you for, a dream, an idea, a gift. And we need to cultivate those things together and not allow a wave of culture to say that those things are of no significance. We should never simply shut up because the world thinks it doesn't matter. So what seed do you have? Are you caring? Great. Where are you going to plant your care? Maybe you're creative. That's a thing of influence. Where are you going to put it to good use for kingdom advancement? Do you have time? Do you have a mouth? Do you have two ears? Two ears is more than a lot of people use. But there is a dilemma. Sometimes it feels like the seed just won't grow. Why is that? Well, I think there are a few things that I'd like to suggest. If we could have our next slide. Firstly, that the sea can get crowded out by other things. And we just roll through life without cultivating anything. Last year in the city, I met with um, a group of Christians, all of whom were over the age of 50 and dreaming about starting a new community. The salutary thing was that not one of them could name an experience of good discipleship or fellowship since they were students. That's 30 years. We too easily sacrifice on formation and community for other busy things. 
I'm watching my friends in their 20s at the moment who have gone from being full of dreams and aspirations and God-given prophecies to simply just surviving. And you notice it too in the way that we make life decisions as we get older. Everything becomes about taking momentary breaths when we get our head above the water. Perhaps we find rent for 100 pounds cheaper or move to a better catchment for our kids just to make life that little bit easier. And we can be willing to make sacrifices that provide us with immediate gratification, but not for the other wonderful things that God has for us. So what are the things that crowd out that seed for you? What are the things that weigh on you? And who's impressing that weight? And what are we going to do with the dreams and desires that we've forgotten or avoided? Secondly, another thing that can damage our ability to cultivate seed is that we get distracted. I've been working now in, in, in a, a full-time worship capacity in church for eight years. And I'm really grateful for it. Actually, I believe, I have a strong conviction that it's what God's called me to, certainly for the foreseeable future. But I can name three occasions in those eight years where I've started looking at other greener grasses. Because it just gets tough, doesn't it? The dream's not always easy. I know this is what I've been made for, so why do I get so distracted? Another thing I think we can do is we can live vicariously. You know, if we think too little of ourselves, we do second-hand living. Because our regular lives seem so undramatic, we find someone whose life and narrative is dramatic. The very recently late Eugene Peterson said of the rise of celebrity, fan clubs encourage second-hand living. Fan clubs encourage second-hand living. And the sanitary thing about that is imagine someone at your funeral saying, man, I'm so grateful that they live vicariously so well. Sorry, this is heavy. <laughs> Where it's heavy. It's been heavy for me. Um, the one, one that's been really heavy for me is actually the comparison. This is another thing that can steal away our seed. It's that when we look at others, rather than being encouraged and spurred on, we can get jealous or territorial. We can, you know, as, as the body of Christ, I think we can get so territorial, we can get into empire building and comparison and... You know, I sometimes think if, as a church, we are more threatened by other churches. It says so much about our insecurities. It kind of says that we don't really know who we're called to meet, who we're called to bless, what God has uniquely called us to do, and how strong we are together. Comparison lacks an understanding of who we are in God and what he's capable of. It's a lie from the enemy, and it's not worth listening to. Okay, so the challenge, I would say, is that if we are not able to celebrate the success of our brothers and sisters elsewhere, I'm not sure that we can be trusted with our own. And the Bible teaches that we are one church under Christ. So if we're comparing ourselves to other churches, we're actually missing out on being able to celebrate with them. And we're also missing out on the opportunity to share their burdens with them. 
And here's the hope. St. Swithin's is right here, right now, of significance to God. Right here, right now. He loves this church. He values this church. He has plans to prosper this church. Wonderful plans. And he wants to partner with us in seeing his kingdom come here. And I've only been here a year, but I know so many people who have met who've joined this church, not because it's the perfect fit for them, but because they can see the mustard seed. They can see that, that God is doing something here and it's worth investing in, it's worth cultivating. And so bring it on. That prophetic insight, those hopes and dreams, bring it on. Let's cultivate those things together. Just to bring it back to more personal stuff, and then I'll finish. What are the unattended mustard seeds in your life? The Bible says that when you have God, there's nothing you can't do. So if there's an unattended mustard seed, stop doing nothing about it, because there's nothing you can't do. The Bible also says that you are more than a conqueror. So ask God what victory and expansion he has in mind for you due to your conqueror identity. The Bible says you are more than a conqueror. So ask God what victory and expansion he has in mind for you due to your conqueror identity. Dream bigger and start small. I sat down with my mentor about five years ago to talk about some of the convictions I have about my life and some of the things I think God's called me to and even some rather big and scary things that people have prophesied over me. And it does not sit comfortably with me talking about that stuff. I was very kind of evasive and rebuffing and apologetic about it. And my good friend Neil, who's a sweet and gentle soul, was very straight with me and it struck me. He looked me straight between the eyes and he said, James, I've got no interest in false humility. You know, Christ was truly, undeniably, and beautifully humble. He was comfortable with being the mustard seed. And he was comfortable and confident in knowing his identity and the potential and what his father had called him to True humility is simply believing what God says about you is true about you. True humility means that you believe that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. It means that you know that the church is the hopeful world. It means that you know God has plans for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. It means that you know that he loves you and he thinks the world of you. And I guess this is the crux of it. Only those who truly know how significant they are in God's eyes, those are the people that don't go chasing after novelty or titles or entitlements. Instead, they are willing to tend to what God asks and bring about what God deems to be significant. Count Zinzendorf was a great name, by the way. He was one of those men, and he was 16 years old when he began something called the Order of the Mustard Seed. Has anyone heard of that? Well, two people from their community sold themselves into slavery so they could preach the gospel to slaves. And the basic premise of the community was to be a people who lived to bring about and cultivate the specific plans, dreams, prophecies, seeds that God had planted in each of their lives. 
but they recognized that their, what they were doing wasn't new. And they traced their inspiration back to, um, uh, I never know how to say his name, but Jan Hass, who 300 years earlier was burned at the stake for translating the Bible from Latin into common tongue. So there was this man who was killed, and 300 years later, he inspired a group of people to go into slavery to preach the gospel. And here's the thing, sometimes when we're um, tending to the seed, we're not tending to it for ourselves, we're tending it to the nations and the generations to come. If it's significant in the eyes of God, it will happen. And if God's definition is so different to the world's, then it changes everything. I actually think it changes everything down to the way that we do children's work. You know, that we don't simply see our Sunday schools as an opportunity for kids to be babysat or to make sure they stay in church, but that we truly believe that the next generation can go far and beyond where we've gone with God, and we want to start that investment in them now. It stops us simply from tipping up to church on a Sunday out of mechanics or as a favor or because we don't have a better offer to loving the church and being in step with God's spirit every day. Understanding what God sees as significant means that we can unswervingly care for the most difficult of loved ones. It means we can commute to the job that we never wanted, still knowing that God is there and he's at work and we can partner with him. It means that we can stop hiding behind addictions, possessions and titles and others when the going gets tough. If you see only those who truly know how significant they are in God's eyes, do not chase after titles or entitlements. Instead, they are willing to tend to what God asks to bring about what he deems significant. I'll finish by sharing this account of Jesus' life. It's called One Solitary Life by Dr. James Alan Francis. Here is a man. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away from him. One of them denied him, and he was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled the only piece of property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am far from within the mark that when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that have ever sat, and all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth 
as powerfully as has that one solitary life. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Amen.